One thing you'll see with Gen Z is because they've grown up with technology, they're digital natives, one thing that would definitely separate them from previous generations. What that has done for them is means that they're constantly overloaded with information. That can lead to one of two things, either choice paralysis or you feel like you have to comment on everything, which is one of the big reasons why we see so many people saying Gen Z care about everything. And what we're starting to see from our data is that actually Gen Z have two or three core things that are core to who they are. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Jay Richards. Jay is the co-founder and CEO at Imogen Insights. It's a startup based in Shoreditch. You may well be familiar with the traditional way that you would do market research. Maybe there's an email list, maybe there's a focus group. But Imogen Insights have built a platform of 36,000 individuals around the world with an app where FMCG brands can ask questions. And we dig into some of the intricacies of, is Gen Z a thing? Are age categories a thing? What are the types of things that people think? How is this different to something else called social listening? And what is social listening? What could you as a B2B brand do with Jay's platform? And what are some of the FMCG brands? So they work with Amazon and their initial client was to do some work for NFL and they work for Pepsi and they'll build FMCG brand products or offerings from the ground up, or they'll get people to give them some feedback on features or benefits or pricing, or whatever it might be. Absolutely fascinating insight into what's emerging in the US election. So we get into what are some of the emerging trends around politics that Jay sees from looking at his data set. Fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Jay. I'm sure you'll love it. Hi, my name is Jay Richards, one of the co-founders and CEO at Imagine Insights. And we enable brands like Amazon, Google, Nike to crowdsource qualitative insight from Gen Z within a matter of minutes. And why did you start this business? I started this business, actually, it was just a, it was just a random. I was working as a consultant in the city. Um, and while I was working as a consultant in the city, I started the startup incubator, taking my own personal money and investing it into kids that grew up in my area in East London, while I was doing that, I amassed an amazing network of really intelligent young Gen Z that were doing great things. I invested my personal money into these kids. Facebook heard I was doing this, invited me to come and speak at Facebook. And when I spoke there, I brought 20 of these kids with me. And the head of retail from the NFL was in the audience. She came up to me afterwards. She's like, oh, so you've got this massive network of young people. There's like 20 of them. But anyway, she's like, this massive network of young people. <laughs> Could they help us to create a marketing campaign? And I was like, yeah, sure, they can. So I took her for dinner in the evening and realized the crux of her problem was she couldn't get qualitative insight at scale. 
So that's when I started the business. So that was that. Okay. What did she need to know? What was the question that she couldn't answer? The problem for her was she was doing a lot of focus groups, doing a lot of research, but it's time consuming. To do a focus group can take you two months to organize and cost you £30,000. So she's like, I need to get insights quicker. And me and my naivety was just like, oh, 100% this can be done. So I was like, let me go out and build a rudimentary version of the technology that we have now. Crowdsourcing insight from Gen Z really, really quickly. And I kind of, because I had no idea about the space, I took that risk and it actually paid off in the end. Because if you, if I'd known, if I'd been a market researcher, I was like, oh no, that's not possible. The reason why we do focus groups, you can get more in-depth insights, so on and so on and so on. I would have just said that. But because I didn't know about the space, I wasn't from a market research background. I just saw it as a problem to solve. Uh, and then we solved it, which is great. When you say you were the brands that you listed at the beginning, Amazon and Google and whoever, Nike, I think you said, what problem are they trying to solve? What When you say, like, we're trying to get this insight at scale, you've got what marketeers inside those businesses saying, we think this is the thing that people might want to buy. Is it? Is that the type of stuff you're solving? Yeah, all of the above. So uh, the, the, the the macro trend that most of these folks are trying to, macro problem, sorry, that most of these folks are trying to solve is how do we engage with this demographic? So that's the top line. Any brand that we talk to, they're like, we just want to understand how to engage better with Gen Z. So when that's regards to product, so say, for example, um, sneaker brands coming to us being, hey, we're going to launch this new sneaker in, in, in 2025. What should we design? How should we design it? What should the colorways be? All these different things that normally you would do in a focus group. You'd get six people into a room, You'd ask them questions, you'd show them the product, but it's too expensive and takes too long. So it's basically doing that, but at scale. So that's what we would do from a product side or from a social media side. Brands come to us and they go, actually, you know what? We need to understand what they would want to see content-wise from us on social media. So we can test different bits of content with our community. But the new product that we've launched, we'll talk about a little bit later, is the Imagine Index, which basically enables brands to ask those bigger macro questions on a consistent cadence and get those answers repeatedly instead of having to wait a long time for them. Is Gen Z, is it a thing? I see all the time people going, oh, Gen Z, they're work shy or they're, you know, they're too soft or, you know, whatever people say about this age range of people. And it just feels a little lazy, maybe. I think the big problem with marketers is we love to just put things in, put people into categories because it's easier for us to sell. If I put you into a category, I can, I can, I can, I can flog you to somebody. It feels like I'm doing something scientific as opposed to just astrology. Exactly. But the generalizing an entire generation is never smart because there's so much nuance to human beings. There's all these different areas and these different things that people have that, that you can't just say this generation are all, I don't know, they all love to be sustainable. So well, it's not true because it's going to be people that don't give a damn about it. So you can't categorize everybody. But this has been happening for the last like three or four um, generations. So we had Gen X, you had the boomers, you got um, millennials and you got Gen Z. That's the first time we really started cracking onto this like generational side of things. But what we can do with research, we can understand specific trends that you can see by doing qualitative research. You can do qualitative research and you can actually, let's ask a question. So if I was going to create this water bottle, how should I create it or how should I market it? Then you're going to get these answers and you can see the trends from the answers. You can see actually of these people, 60% said this, but not only did 60% say this, here's what they said about it. Here's the why behind they said that. So you can see those trends in there and that's why data is important, but you definitely shouldn't be making big, grandiose statements to summarize the entire generation. That's not smart. 
And do you just do Gen Z or do you do, is it broader? Are you able to show that difference between Gen Z and Boomer or the fact on this question for this thing, there's no difference? Yeah, so we, we do do all generations. We're predominantly focused on Gen Z because that was our starting point. Well, we are growing. We've got millennial, Gen X and Boomer communities as well. So we're definitely growing that for sure. You said you started off with sort of 20 kids from East London. Do you see cultural patterns as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So so we have 36,000 now in 111 countries around the world. So we're well and truly global, which is wonderful. But you definitely see some amazing patterns. You can see folks that are from a specific part of London will be answering very specifically to, to folks at a specific part of Paris. So you can see these cultural trends popping up and, and coming up. You can pull these threads, in, which is exciting. Do you have an example of something where you go, oh, that was interesting because they, they're the same age, but they answered it differently or even something where it's like, oh, they're a different age, but they answered it the same? Yeah, good question. I think um, the ways we've seen this is actually we did some work for Amazon last year and we did it across a mayor in the US and you saw there's a specific age group, so between 16 to 19. I can't talk about the actual question itself because it's brand specific, but 16 to 19, they all answered the question very, very similarly. So the older demographic of Gen Z didn't. They were very positive about the question. But this 16 to 19 demographic globally were all answering the question in a very similar way. They were all going, this is BS. I don't agree with it. And here are the reasons why I don't agree with it. And all of the answers, you could literally copy and paste the answers next to each other. And they were almost identical with the way people viewed that question and also viewed that topic that Amazon was talking about. Fantastic. And what's the methodology? How have you created these communities? How do you gather this insight? Yeah, really good question. So it's one large community globally, so 36,111 countries. And we actually, most of the community join via community members. So if you just Google Imagine Insights, you'll see we have a whole bunch of Google reviews and Trustpilot reviews, and they're directly from community members. So on average, for every person we pay, so that's the first thing we pay them. So on average, for every person we pay, they refer two to five people into the community. So it's a very viral process where they just community members refer community members. And the way it works is they have a mobile app on their phone. A client will ask a question. So they go onto their self-service dashboard. A client will go into the self-service dashboard. They type in a question. They select the location, the gender, and the number of responses they want. They hit go. That goes directly through to our community. They answer on their phones. And that goes directly back to the client after it's been checked by an AI and some human beings, which is great. And types of questions all because I'm thinking, you know, back in the day I had, I used to use a business called Vance and Bourne. They had an IT buyer email survey. So you could pay to put a question in their monthly news, monthly email, which was, you know, you'd be able to get a question. You could, you could use it for research purposes and flip that into some PR, use it to drive some sort of campaign. And can you then segment that 36 by 36,000 people by job and other demographics so that you can do the same thing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we, we have two different technologies. So the first technology I was talking about was the Imagine Index, and that's for bigger macro questions. So there's less segmentation with that. You would type in your question, select your gender, select your location, select your number of responses and hit go. That instead of Googling or looking at reports, it's saving all that legwork. Or instead of using social listening, that's what that's designed to replace. That's on one side of things. Imagine Index, good. Then we've got the brief platform. So that's designed for more segmentation. So you could go to me, Jay, I want young, working class, white girls that grew up in Liverpool that specifically love playing football on a Tuesday and on a Thursday. 
and we can specify right down to that. So very, very niche. And I'd be like, Dominic, I don't know why you're looking for these people, but it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> we can specify right down to them. We can find them and then ask those questions. So two different types of platforms. One, replacing social listening. The other one, replacing focus groups. Say, explain social listening for me. So social listening is a wonderful tool. I absolutely love social listening. Phenomenal tool. So the idea behind social listening is you will come to a social listening company, you'll be like, we're a political organization. We're trying to figure out what people are thinking in the election in the US. And then social listening, they will go onto Twitter, they'll go onto X and they'll go, okay, 60% of people have a positive sentiment about Biden. 65% of people have a positive, so on and so on. About, it's all about sentiment and all about what the social media space is saying around these topics. It's really, really great. The problem is, if you can find me one person that isn't being performative when they use social media, I will give you £100. Because when we're on, twi- on, when we're on Twitter or X, I am the smartest person alive. I am the sharpest person alive. If you meet me in real life, it's probably not like that. When I'm on Instagram, I'm only posting once a year. So I'm going to post once a year, but it's when I've been on holiday and you're not going to see me again until next year. So when we use social media, we're being performative. So that then means that the data we're getting is based upon people being performative. So the index replaces that. So we ask the people we want, the questions we want, and we get it in a period of time that we want as well. How do you know that your people are, I was going to say, how many people do you need to ask a question? And it's, it's, I suppose that question is the same as the question I was going to ask, which is that sort of scale and size for statistical significance, right? You know, you might have 20 kids in East London, all who are, have mobile phones and are prepared to pay to be on your app. And there's another 9 million people who go, we're not doing that, it's a load of bollocks. So, you know, it might be quite specific. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So it's a really good question. So from a from a quantitative perspective, if we were doing quantitative research, the minimum nat rep, so national representative um, amount, would be a thousand. Normally, people say okay, a thousand and above for, for quant. But with qual, historically, brands would do focus groups. You get five or six people in a room, and you'd ask them a series of questions. See, it's a, it's much smaller numbers, and the reason for that is is the depth of insight you're getting. So with us you're getting 300, 400 word responses per question. So you don't need as many people because you're getting much more depth from the responses that you're getting. That's the answer to that. Fab. And so, <laughs> and mainly B2C brands you're working with. And if you're doing B2B, what are you doing in B2B? To tell the truth, we haven't done any B2B work, if I'm being transparent. Um, we're, we're predominantly B2C, so Apple, Nike, Google, Amazon, so on and so on. They're our normal client base. And you said you we, we were chatting before you we were recording, you've got a new thing that you're launching? What's the what's this new thing? So that's the Imagine Index, which I was speaking about a second ago. So um, we kind of alluded to it already, but it's the that's the tool that's, that's, that I'm pitching can replace social listening. So it's the asking those specific questions and specific demographics. So yeah, that's, that's the one I was mentioning earlier. And so do you think that social listening, the reason that pollsters get it so wrong is because of that performative thing that you're talking about in terms of social media? Part of it will be that. And, and, and I always want to say to people, don't ever, any, anybody ever get me wrong. I think social listening is a phenomenal tool, but I think the challenge is historically as brands, as organizations, what we've done is we've taken one research methodology or one research tool and we've based our entire hypothesis, our entire theory on this one tool. So we're only doing quantitative research. So we find out that 60% love this laptop. Why do they love it? I have no idea, but I know that 60% of them love it. So we've done that historically. Or we've only listened to social listening. And what we need to do is take all these research tools 
and mesh them together and actually get an answer. So social listening is great, phenomenal tool. But as I said earlier, the challenge is I'm only performative when I'm using social media. If you see me on Twitter, I'm only giving the best answers. I'm not going to make myself sound like an idiot when I'm using Twitter. Or I may do, depending on what I'm talking about. <laughs> depending on what I'm talking about. It depends on your level football, of self-awareness. Exactly. <laughs> but it's the but it's the but it's the ability to go on there and actually go, actually, this is exactly what people are thinking. My argument would be, is this really what people are thinking? Or is this are they saying what they think people want them to say? That's always the question. It's similar in focus groups as well, though, isn't it? I mean, historically people God, people have launched some real donkey products on the back of a focus group. Yeah, yeah, you are you are very right. And again, in focus groups, the challenge is group thought. Because if there's if there's five or six people in a room, and I'm a racist, and I just can't stand white people, and I'm on this, I'm in, I'm in this focus group, and I cannot stand white people, and everyone's like, but Jay, your dad's white. You know what? Like, not, not, not everybody's watching this on video. Some people <laughs> might be listening to you, and you're going, <laughs> "Hey, I'm a racist." <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, wait, wait, wait. But imagine, imagine, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a black man and my father's white though. So imagine I'm like, I'm a racist. I hate white people. So I come into this focus group and it's me and five other white people. I'm not going to sit there and be like, I can't stand this. I'm not going to give that honest opinion because of group thought. So I'm going to wait back, see what everyone else says and then jump in. And that's the problem. But the way we've designed these tools is you can sit at home in your underwear and somebody can say to you, what do you, what do you actually think what do you actually think of black people? What do you actually think of this politician? And you will give your honest, no holds barred opinion simply for the fact that you know no one is actually going to ever find out it's you. So you can give your raw, honest opinion on it. What are uh, you doing some work at the minute on the US, upcoming US election? Yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. I can't talk about and the. the you, can't, yeah, yeah. you can't talk about it? No, can, you can't this, even say. Yeah. Can, you talk about, can you talk about things in the past that have surprised yeah. you? So I, you know what I can do? You know what I can do? Gen Z, one thing you will see with Gen Z is because they've grown up with technology, they're digital natives, one thing that would definitely separate them from previous generations is the fact that they, are, they didn't adopt technology, they, just, they were just born into it. So what that has done for them is means that they're constantly overloaded with information. So that can lead to one of two things, either choice paralysis or you feel like you have to comment on everything, which is one of the big reasons why we see so many people saying, Gen Z care about everything. And what we're starting to see from our data is that actually Gen Z have two or three core things that are core to who they are. So each individual Gen Z will say, this is what I really care about, whatever that may be, whatever that topic that may be. And with the election, is one of the very, especially specifically in the US, with the election with our US community members, it is so polarizing is interesting but the the people that we're seeing in the center are compared to other data that we've seen before are so much more open to quote unquote switching sides than previous generations there are a lot more actually you know what that could make sense and actually you know what you might be right i might be wrong on this subject what the, and the swing think, the swing it's bigger the the, the, the yes, bit in the middle this, it, yeah the, the bits in the middle it's is, more polarized is, but the bit in the middle is is bigger yeah and and it's more flexible in terms of where it so, might go. So, so the people are on either side, ooh, the people that are at the either end of the spectrum, they're going to war, you're never going to change them. But the ones in the center, that has got bigger. And they are open to having a conversation. They're going, you know what? I think Trump's a bit of a dick, but actually maybe his policy around with this was all right. You know what? I'm not really happy with Biden because he keeps falling asleep on stage. But maybe actually this makes sense <laughs> around this. And I think this is the... This is a beautiful thing. When you look at qualitative data, you can really get into the nuance of that. But if you go onto Twitter, 
It's just everyone's arguing. You're not going to see that. You're just going to see warfare. And just taking you back to that Gen Z piece of work that you did for, for I think you said Amazon, that you, you said 16 to 19 felt very different to the rest of Gen Z. Is that an emergent thing or the 16 to 19 year olds, are they, are they always sort of slightly out of kilter? You get to 21 and you've moved into the, you know, this whole thing about, you know, when you early on in your life, you might vote Labour and later in your life, you might vote Conservative. It sort of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the generation is. It's more about sort of how old you are. Or? 100%. Once you start a business, you realise the taxes might be, might be a bit higher with a certain party. You're like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I'll vote differently. Um, I think the, so the re, in that specific research there, the, the reason why the 16 to 19 was different when we looked at the data, when I sat down and read through it, what I was seeing was, it was that this generation were actually, um, they were at secondary school during um, COVID. So they were at secondary school during COVID. Oh, and what, what okay. that did was, it completely changed the way they engaged with this specific question because it meant something different to them. Because all previous generations, we, from all previous generations, we had gone through high school and we'd done the normal things, whether it was the prom or whether it was your final exams, all these different like rites of passage that we did. And in America, it's so much more intense. And what you're seeing with this, with this demographic is they had that entire thing was obliterated. They just didn't have it. It just didn't exist. So for them, the way they viewed this specific question was completely polar opposite to how other generations viewed it, simply for the fact, for them, that part of their existence hadn't actually happened and it was completely thrown off kilter. Which is going to stay with them all the way through. Exactly right. So when they're parents, it'll be completely different. I visited a high school in uh, New York, the Aviation High School. So this school just teaches people, 50% of the people who leave this high school go on to be engineers for, you know, Delta and American Airlines and what have you in the tri-state area. So, you know, 50% of your classes is, you know, English, French, whatever. The other 50% is is metalwork and building jet engines, right? They've got a Gulfstream in the car park that somebody donated to them. They, they took it a bit, rebuilt it in the car park. And every now and again, they go and fire up the jet engines of the Gulfstream in the car park, right? It's just like, Incredible. It's like you just, as I, I just went, oh God, I'd have loved to have gone to school here. This is like fantastic. But we were going around the school. The principal said to me, he said, look, I'm, I have to apologize for the kids being so quiet. He said, pre-COVID, he said, you would not have been able to hear yourself think. He said, they came back after COVID, 500 of them in the canteen. You could hear a pin drop. Crazy. He said, like, it's just... Yeah, absolutely yeah. incredible the change that the population of the school had had as a result of not being there for a, for a little while. Amazing difference. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's so where does, what's the trends? Like what goes, what's next? Like where, where are the, where are some of these things that are going? Where are things, you know, where will we be in a couple of years time in terms of this technology and what we're able to do with it? Yeah, I think the the with regards to the technology, I think the, the most exciting part for us is one thing that I'm most excited about is um, zero party data. So zero party data is the idea that, say, for example, I'm a human being and I've gone to Imagine Insights and I've said, you know what, actually, I, I want to provide data to you for answering questions. And then a certain brand would come to us and Nike would say, you know what, I want to know about this. This person answered this question, but now I want to know what sneakers they have at home. And I also want to know these other bits and pieces. And then a notification will come to that person and go, hey, Nike wants to know X. Are you happy for them to do that? And if so, for them to have access to that, they will pay you X. And that's zero-party data, where it's abundantly clear 
that you are providing your data to this brand and you're getting paid to do so. Because at the moment, it's third-party data. We're still living in that world where you log onto a website and they're like, oh, do you want to accept these cookies? You accept the cookies and they're tracking you around the website. And that's how they get data on you. Zero-party data is where it's abundantly clear that you're providing that data. And that's where I want to move to. That's where I see the business moving. We have this index, this beautiful platform where clients can ask these questions. And then once they've asked a the question, they can go, actually, you know what? Let me deep dive on that person a little bit more. And then they can deep dive, deep dive, deep dive and start to get to the really granular detail about who these people are. And that's the way I see the world shifting for sure. Yeah, because they're saying, look, that's really interesting, but how we we, we want to dissect that. We want to look at that slightly differently. Oh, oh, look, everyone who wears Adidas footwear, now we know who, who answered that question. We can see whether they actually own Nike or Adidas and that would be useful. If we're Nike and we want to target Adidas wearers, for example. Okay. And what about AI? What does that do to your business model? Yeah. So it's good for us. So we use artificial intelligence to actually, when a community member provides a response, we have AI in the background that firstly makes sure that the response isn't nonsense. They haven't just typed A or B or C. Also, because <laughs> <laughs> so many of them have tried it in the past, they try it and it flags it straight away and they just get a notification like we can see you're trying to BS the system. Like, don't do that. Yeah, um, we're not paying you for that. Go away. Exactly. The second thing that happens is it just double checks it. It's not generated by AI. But then the third thing is it will check that they haven't taken it from anywhere on the internet. So we use AI to make sure it hasn't been plagiarized. They haven't just copied and pasted from an article and banged it in and thought, there we go, we're done. So those are the ways that we use artificial intelligence in the moment. But we're adding a new layer to this where you would log into the index, you'll ask your question, you'll get your responses back from the community within a matter of minutes. You can then use our AI large language learning model that we're building, where you could type in a question about that data set and the AI will answer it for you. So you could type, of these um, responses, what is the favorite social media profile that they love and why? And it will then the AI will then respond to that. It will look at the data and it'll go, okay, here is your answer. Here is your takeaway from that. So that's the layer we're adding. So for us, AI is very symbiotic to our business. It's very, very complementary to what we're doing and it's definitely going to be complementary as we grow. Um, but yeah, phenomenal tool. Absolutely love it. That's fab because that, that just democratizes that uh, yeah. insight generation. Like anybody for can sure. ask a question. Exactly right. Exactly right. You don't, you don't need to be an insight genius to do it. You could just be anybody using it. Yeah, very good. What is a tool, a use of the tool or tool that you think would be great that nobody's asked you to, like, is there a brand that you think, God, they should have just come and asked us because that would have been amazing. Uh, to have- I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. There's so many. I'd literally, I could, I, could, <laughs> I, I, could, I, could, I could sit here for a week and give the brands that should have used us. Um, I think oh, but the- no, I, well, in that, in that case, because what there in your answer is, is a thing that somebody did wrong or badly. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, we would have saved them from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Go on, I'd love, what, what would well, you say? Well, the first one would be PepsiCo. So PepsiCo were a client of ours, but the, the Kendall Jenner campaign they had a few years ago where Kendall Jenner came out and she sold world peace with that, with that Pepsi can. Things like that, and brands make common mistakes like that all the time. Things like that would, would be great. And I think one of the things that I think <laughs> Bud, is, Bud, Bud Light, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Oh God, Jesus. Yeah, that's not even your style. <laughs> I think one of the things, one of the things that is very important for me and for the business, and I think also for, for brands to understand, is that you can't do research in pockets, which historically is what we do. Research is kind of like the ugly cousin of marketing. If you look at the ladder, research is normally at the bottom rung of the ladder. It's normally like, ah, oh, you know what, maybe fine, we'll do some research. But what people need to realize is if you do good research 
and you are doing good research throughout the year in a way that's sustainable and makes sense, you then have informed ways of making decisions. Because at the moment, we're making decisions based upon either not enough data or no data at all. What we need to do is get as much data as possible so we can make informed decisions about what we're going to be doing next. And I think what I see and what I think is exciting, what I would love to see brands do is them to go, actually, no, we're going to use the index to do this underlying questioning throughout the year. But at the same time, we're going to add in our social listening. But at the same time, also, and adding all these tools together, making it very simple to do and then being able to actually make informed decisions about what they're doing next. There is a B2B thing, which is really B2C. So I, I think all of our clients who are in, B, in the B2B space all recruit. And so they all go out and place job ads. That is an advert for your business without any research. And then you go, oh, we're disappointed that we didn't get any responses. And actually your platform would allow people particularly who, are, who, are, who people who are recruiting at scale to go, okay, we think this is the type of age bracket that we want for this job. And this is where we think they're located. Well, we could say, which of these things are you most interested in? And then when you, run, when you do a job ad, you've tested the job ad rather than put it out there and people go, no, we're not working for them. They look, yeah. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. There you go. Give me another business model. Appreciate it. <laughs> Jay, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Hire slowly, fire fast. I wish I'd... So, so in, in, in my hubris, I was like, when we, we were... 2022 was a huge year for us. I've seen amounts of revenue. I was like, oh my God, I'm killing it. I'm a genius. I've done it. I'm a genius. I've, I've, I've started the perfect business. I'm like, nobody can stop me. Nobody can stop me. I'm off. Let me hire as many people. As I've hired an obscene amount of people. I hired too many people. And then off the back of it, off that bucket that hiring, the economy changed. Our largest client canceled a contract and I had all these people that I was stuck work and I just, it was just, an, and it wasn't them. They were lovely human beings. I hired too fast and then I took too long to get, to get rid of people. Then our business model changed and we very much became more of a SaaS business and less consultative. And I, did, I didn't move quick enough. So definitely hiring slower and firing faster. I will never make that mistake again. And now I've cut the cost back um, I'm the son of immigrants, so I know how to do a lot with a little. So I've cut the cost back, and now we're scaling from a place that makes complete sense. So, did you say at the beginning you were working as a consultant in the city? Mm. Yeah, Before, yeah, yeah. So, well, how did you end up doing that? I'm a salesman by trade. So, as you could probably tell, I can talk. Um, so, I'm a salesman by trade. I've sold everything from security alarms to houses to the only thing I probably haven't sold is cars. Um, so, I was working at an insurance firm in Andover working there for okay. a while and then I met in, one Hampshire, of the in Hampshire just up the in road Hampshire. from me here yes yeah, yeah. yeah in Hampshire um, and then one of the senior leadership from AXA the insurance firm they reached out to me and there was like hey um, one of the team met you in a meeting we'd love to bring you in I ended up becoming and um, working with them and working as a consultant with them which is great um, enjoyed it we'll never go back to that ever again I was making more money than God which was great but it was it was it was soul destroying for, for me because it just wasn't really what I wanted to do but that then transitioned me into this so it's great what are you hoping that working with you had those 20 kids from East London that you were that you took to that meeting what were you trying to give them an insight into the people at the meeting sorry yeah well i was just thinking you said you were working with uh, these yeah. you know kids in east london what is it that you knew that you were trying to get them to see the thing is i think it's the is the proximity to actually doing something 
So growing up where 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 I grew up and in, in the area I live in, it's the you don't see many things. So either if people are successful, they're successful for for these five or six different areas that we're told that people that come from our area can succeed in. And my idea was actually and what and in in your in your area, what are those five things? Sports, um, music, um, being a teacher, things like the, the, the great careers. But it's things that are very, very, very accessible, I would say. And my idea is, hey, there's a whole world out there. Because now I've got, I've, I've, I've got friends of mine that sold their, um, people that grew up in my area or grew up in Elephant and Castle, and they sold their businesses for tens of millions. So when I get these people around them, so my son is 16, when I get him around these, and the conversations he's hearing, he sat with somebody saying, oh, you know, I'm looking to acquire this business in Dubai, or da, da, da. those kind of conversations you can hear can expand your mind because you're sealing is no longer what it was before is expanding. Because I've got friends that I know that I've made over the years that their dads started businesses back 30 years ago and they go skiing every season and all these things. It was like, it's like ludicrous to me. I was like, why would you go skiing? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But to these guys, it was like, oh, that was just my childhood. Like, of course I went skiing every season and we went to so on and so on and we go to San Pedro and stuff, whatever it may be, that was their norm. So then for them, when it went to going into career, they were just like, of course I could do whatever I want. Of course, I can go and achieve whatever I want because the possibilities are there. But until you see that, it's very hard to be what you can't see. So I wanted to enable that to happen. Is there pressure from anywhere in your in the community that you grew up in to keep people in the community? Not necessarily, no. I just think it's because, and this is happening less and less, because of the internet, people can now is so much easier to you just you just find information. But when I was when I was younger, it wasn't the same. When I was a lad, when I was younger, well, you're, and was, you're ancient now, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with my grey hairs and my beard. But when <laughs> when I was younger, it wasn't it wasn't the same. You didn't really have that access. Now you just jump onto YouTube. You type in like ways of making money, and there's a, there's a there's a plethora of different things you can do. So I think it's not necessarily the community that's doing that. I just think it's the it's the, it's the systemic issues that surround living in certain areas or or being from a certain background. But that's changing. That's 100% changing. I've got friends that are from all ethnic backgrounds that are making shit tons of money and um, doing very good at what they do. Was there any inspiration at school to think bigger and broader than that sort of standard five things? Not necessarily. I would say my arg- my argument with the school system is is a, is a Victorian design structure, so a Victorian era design structure that is designed to create employees, if we're being honest, is learn information to regurgitate that information to provide it in, a, in an exam. And that's not critical thinking. It's not, it's, 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 it's just, let's just do this and create more and more employees. So I wouldn't say the school system, but my mum, my mum came to this country, she's an immigrant to this country from Jamaica. She came here, started her own business, built her own career. Before she'd even met my dad, she'd bought her own home at 18, 19 years old. Very, very successful woman. So that's the kind of person I look to. Um, and then I'm surrounded by men and women, especially in the Caribbean culture. There's a lot of women. It was the women that were the matriarchs of the, of the home. And I, w- I would look and I would see that and be like, okay, I want to be, I want to be that. I want to be that. Fab. Um, what books along the way have maybe been inspiration to you or you think that people listening should read? There's a whole bunch. Um, I'm, 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 I'm glad to answer this one. So the first one is Psychology of Money. Completely changed. The Psychology of Money completely changed the way I view um, my investments that I make, and also um, the savings that I that I have, and all, all different areas of life. So I definitely think the psychology of money that's a good one. Second one is a book called Hooked. It's how to build addictive products. 
So how to build things that people really get a, get get addicted to, build habits. Um, third one would be um, Elon Musk's book that was written. I think it was by Walter Isaac. I don't know, yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. The biography of Elon Musk. Yes. Oh, yeah, phenomenal read. And um, the same for Steve Jobs. Again, another phenomenal read. And the last one is Viola Davis's book that came out last year. So she's an actress from the US, and her background that she grew up in and the success of that woman are just. It's just. She went to Juilliard. She just like absolute powerhouse. And if you were going to read anything, ignore all the other books I said and read that one. And that one's worth every, worth every penny. I never heard of it. What's the, what's the synopsis? What's my, what should I, why should I go and pick that one up? Anyone could do anything in any time period. That's what I learned from that book. Because she, she was a, a black woman that grew up in the wrong time. She was the wrong color. She was the wrong gender. She lived in the wrong place. She lived in the middle of bum F nowhere. And she had nothing going for her. But she went, she built it, she made it. And, and now she's just an absolute, absolute queen. Fab. And Jay, how should people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you? What's the best way to get you? If you just Google me, Jay Richards, um, you'll, you'll find me. Google me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. So J-A-Y. K for kilo and then Richards. If you just Google JK Richards, you'll find me. Um, and then um, the business is Imagine Insights. That's I-M-A-G-E-N Insights. Jay, absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for coming on. Dominic, appreciate you, buddy. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.